Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider donating. Visit www.writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click on support the blog. We have a special guest today on the show. Jeffrey Deaver is the author of the Lincoln Rhyme series, including The Bone Collector, the Catherine Dance series, and his newest, The Never Game, which introduces the character of Coulter Shaw. So The Never Game delivers an interesting mix of survivalism and tech, the marriage of nature and gaming. So can you talk about what brought these two seemingly disparate themes together for you? The diametrically opposed elements of the uh, high-tech, Silicon Valley high-tech, and also based in California, the uh, the wilderness where my protagonist grew up outside of Fresno, uh, the uh, Sierra Nevada mountain range, uh, both in California, uh, both elements of uh, m- uh, you know modern culture, and yet sort of uh, at opposite ends of the spectrum. I'll mention the, the genesis of the, the book. Uh, it's, first of all, a new character, uh, Coulter Shaw, your listeners may know my uh, my Lincoln Rhyme books from the Bone Collector, and I, I'll just add, uh, we just learned that NBC is shooting a, a a series, TV series, based on the Bone Collector. Oh, that is so exciting! Yeah, I'm very excited about that. Title will be Lincoln. It's not based on the well, it's based on the Bone Collector, but also the other eleven books in the series. The Coulter Shaw character is uh, very different from Lincoln Rhyme. Lincoln is a forensic scientist and sticks pretty much uh, to home both of his because of his physical limitations but because he's um, a homebody he doesn't like to get out of new york coulter shaw travels the country looking for rewards mm. this is a phenomenon i was not very familiar with i guess in passing i was as we all are so and so's offering $100,000 for a missing person the police cannot find an escaped fugitive they're offering 10 20 $30,000 for that but i wanted an excuse for a character to travel around the country and become involved in regional mysteries mm. i've always had a fondness for those and i i like the idea of my character going to uh, Sioux City going to St. Louis, going to Orlando, Florida, going to uh, uh, La Jolla, California, and getting involved in a crime there and getting to know the people and the cultures, maybe indigenous peoples, maybe um, folks who are transplants uh, there. Uh, what are the, the businesses? What nature of crime is there? So that's the, the character I just decided to create. And uh, now how did he get involved in crime in Silicon Valley in the video world? I'm blaming my nine-year-old niece, and I'll tell you how that happened. <laughs> a few years ago, now I'm not a gamer. I, I, I you know, I, I know a little bit about games. I know computers pretty well for the world word processing, uh, and I did write a book about computer hacking 20 years ago called The Blue Nowhere. Mm-hmm. But video gaming was never part of my my world. So a few years ago, I was visiting my family, and my nine-year-old niece said. Uncle Jeff, uh, will you play a, a video game with me? And I said, well, honey, I don't really know uh, how they work, uh, but sure, if you want to walk me through it. She took my phone, loaded the game. It was Minecraft, by the way. She had it on her phone, and we linked the two phones via Wi-Fi. And I said, okay, now, now what do we do? And she said, well, basically, you die. And she took a sword and stabbed me in like the first <laughs> 10 seconds of the game. 
It was the the survival mode of uh, Minecraft, not yes. the creative mode. I laughed. I, I was a bit peeved, I will say, because I didn't know how to play the game. And she laughed and I laughed. And uh, then we she told me how to play. And we had a lot of fun doing it. But playing the game is an odd thing. You get very wrapped up in it. Mm-hmm. And you you kind of lose track of the world around you. And even though these are pixels that we're playing with, these are bits and bytes of data. Nonetheless, you kind of get a sense of uh, this is, there's a reality here that's making me a little uneasy. I thought I, I want to do something with this. And then, uh, you know, I had other books to write. I wrote a, a Lincoln Rhyme book and uh, wrote a number of short stories. I thought when it came time to create Coulter Shaw, I said, well, I'll send him to Silicon Valley and put him in this, this game world where somebody may or may not have become so obsessed with a video game that he or she takes it out of the computer world and reenacts it in the real world. Coulter Shaw, to earn the reward to find a missing woman uh, who may be the victim in this potential scenario, has to leap into the uh, world of Silicon Valley and the gaming world. And that's how the Never Game came about. That's fantastic. I love it. Also, I absolutely love the idea of having the mobility of moving your main character, your series title character around to different cities and using those for local flavor and writing literature of place of a different place every time. I think that is really smart. It's one of the things that I think True Detective has done really well, where each season definitely has a different flavor, even though we're looking at crime and uh, looking at a different murder every time each season has its own flavor because of setting and that is a very powerful way to bring your audiences back every time but also to bring you back as a writer every time i teach courses in writing and i tell my students right up front that i'm a plot driven writer plot is paramount to Mm me and we can uh, again talk about craft in, in a second if you like but um i say the best plot in the the world is useless if you don't have, first of all, living, breathing characters, and as an aside, uh, if I may, I, I read something interesting not not too long ago that the same part of our brain that uh, forms a connection with our uh, living, breathing friends and family also processes our relationship with fictional characters. Mm-hmm. We know uh, Harry Potter, for instance, or James Bond or uh, Coulter Shaw are not real. They are uh, figments of other people's imaginations. Nonetheless, we have a true connection with them to the extent that we don't want them to feel bad. We don't want them to die. We don't want them to be taken away from us. Mm -hmm. So I tell my students that, okay, plot is most important, but without a really well-developed character, uh, your story is gonna have less impact, less emotional import. Well, by the same token, a place has to be a character too. So I tell my students, you can't Google a place and uh, or look at Wikipedia and throw out the uh, Chamber of Commerce facts. Mm-hmm. You need to go there. You need to make it real. People like the, the locations as much as they like uh, the, the, the story. They want to smell it. They want to know what foods are there. They want to know what the heat's like. Do you sweat? Uh, do you get cold? What's the weather like? What are the problems? Who are the criminals? What mm-hmm. kind of gangs do they here. You make the location come alive. Absolutely. And I agree with you 100%. One of the things I tell people when they ask me about writing is that it's my job to make you care about something that never happened to people that don't exist. 
And that is really hard. <laughs> I like that. That's very well said. <laughs> Thank you. And if I can do that, if I can make people react, my books are, um, they don't commonly have happy endings. And so I occasionally get angry emails or tweets or whatever, what have you, bad reviews. And I'm always thrilled to see them because it's like, wow, I really made you care. Like you cared enough to tell me how angry you are. There's nothing worse than indifference. Right. Absolutely. I agree. Well, maybe since we're we're having a conversation here, uh, what what are what genre do you work in, and uh, what what are some of your uh, your titles? Oh uh, well, I write YA, and I actually won an Edgar Award in 2015. Ah, congratulations! Thank you very much. I won an Edgar Award for a title called um, "A Madness So Discreet," which is a gothic historical thriller set in an insane asylum. So I've had some luck. I can't complain. My eighth novel just came out in March, and I'm able to write full time and. Uh, do the podcast on the side. So, you know, I really can't complain. Well, fantastic. I, I hope our, our paths cross maybe at a conference. I was just um, president of MWA, Mystery Writers of America. And if yes. your listeners don't know, that's the organization that gives away the uh, Edgars. And uh, not to add this as an aside, but you've won an Edgar and you are now talking to the Susan Lucci of the Edgars. Eight nominations, but not a win yet. And at this point, frankly, I don't. I do not want to win. I want to carry. I want to have the record for most nominations and no wins. And and I may even, if I'm nominated, I may even step down uh, from the from accepting the award. I just want the nomination at this point. So of course. Congratulations of course. to you. You were. I know the YA field is. Uh, my sister Julie Reese Deaver writes young adult uh, yes. novels. It's a wonderful market. One I have no uh, talent for, but I uh, truly respect uh, young adult writing. And we we want to get the kids reading books. It's so important nowadays. Absolutely, it is. And I often, when I think about people that have been nominated a lot but never won, I always think of Ed Harris, who to me is just one of the best actors in the world. Yet I don't think he's ever won an Oscar. So really, oh, I'm I'm surprised at, at that because he is so talented. I'll watch anything he's in, whether it's John literary or a biopic or whatever he's fantastic he is he's amazing i always tell people i would watch him eat a ham sandwich like he's amazing. <laughs> now there could be a i don't know the way the uh, some of the films are being made nowadays that could very well be one steve buscemi would probably be in it as well i don't know why <laughs> I no that would be a wonderful you should pitch that <laughs> get that into nbc quick Let's go back to the Never game. I wanted to talk to you about messages in fiction because there are messages in your books for the reader and they can either take it away with them or they can leave it in the book, however they prefer. And when we're talking about the Never game, what kind of message would you like to see them take away? I'll, I'll preface this by, by saying uh, something that I, I tell my students <clears throat> in my courses that Ernest Hemingway said, if you, you want to send a message, go to Western Union. <laughs> of course, and, you know, the younger people in my, my class stare at me like, what's Western Union? Right. Um, and then I have to explain it's a way of sending like tweets uh, <laughs> before there was Twitter. What Hemingway meant now, it was a literary writer, of course, his, his books had stories that were informed by cultural and geopolitical and psychological events. But his point was, you don't preach. Mm -hmm. What you do is you tell a story and you um, expand that story emotionally and intellectually by uh, bringing in external 
elements other than your your main plot. And I'm talking about the kind of books I write. So there's always a crime that has to be solved or potential crimes that have to be averted. But I also bring in uh, those geopolitical and romantic elements. My job is to write the most emotionally engaging book I can. So I do that on as many levels as possible. So the crime, stop the killer. Mm -hmm. The romance or the personal relationship, not necessarily romance, but relationships between maybe siblings or parents and children or friends, throw conflict into that situation. Geopolitical, the plot may have to do with uh, uh, climate change. Uh, That's something to bring in. My book, The Kill Room, was about targeted assassinations of U.S. citizens. My book, The Broken Window, was about data mining. Now, I don't get on a soapbox and preach, but I try to bring in um, elements that expand the story off the page so that at the end, end of the day, and the reader says, okay, thank goodness, now my books do tend to have happy endings. My uh, readers think, okay, good, the, the detective stopped the crime. But, you know, that was interesting about the uh, ecological elements that although certain chemical substances are banned here from manufacturing, you can go down to South America and buy them and ship them up and, and use them on your lawn without any sanctions whatsoever. Huh, mm-hmm. That's interesting. That was my book, The, uh, the Empty Chair, uh, if I recall. Anyway, it was a, a book I wrote some years ago. For The Never Game, um, there there are some uh, Im- implications that I was interested in. Uh, one being the addictive quality that video games have. Mm-hmm. I, I did learn, and I, I believe this, because I researched a lot of sources, that a video game that tends toward uh, violent action, like some of the first-person shooter games, mm-hmm. they do not lead people who would not otherwise be predisposed to violence into violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, let's take a, a nice kid, a nice boy or a nice girl in high school who is, uh, you know, otherwise well-adjusted, and, but is not going to play a Call of Duty and say, you know what, I'm going to go get a gun and shoot people. Right. It doesn't work that way. However, there is a correlation. I don't see causation, but there's correlation. And that people who are predisposed to violence tend to gravitate toward violent games mm-hmm. and get a different type of satisfaction out of them. I think the bigger problem, and it's not limited to video games alone, but we certainly see it in the gaming world, is the addictive quality they had have and the uh, consequences, which like any addictive activity or addictive substance, is a problem when it crosses a line. I have a friend who just had back surgery and presumably in incredible pain for a while. He may be on uh, opioids for a, you know, a short period of time, then he'll stop them, they've served their purpose and he'll, he'll go on with his life. You can play a video game for maybe an hour a day, uh, maybe every few times, uh, few times a week, but when it becomes an addiction so that your life kind of shuts down, it becomes mm-hmm. a substitute for a normal life, uh, then that, that can be a problem. And video games can do that. There are people who play 40, 50, 60 hours a week. They have no other life. And the the adjunct problem is that what do you do when you're sitting at a screen? You don't get exercise. And uh, junk food or fast food is the uh, the way to go. There's a correlation between uh, you know weight gain, young onset di- uh, diabetes. Uh, it's something to think about. I'm mm-hmm. not to save the world, but it's, it's just a fact that I bring up in the uh, 
in the book. And and if you, you know your listeners do want to go pick it up, uh, they may find at the end of the book there is something even more pernicious about video games. But I don't want to mention that because I'm a sick and twisted suspense writer, and I have to leave you in suspense. <laughs> very good, very good. Um, you know, I think it's a really interesting point you bring up. I'm sure you're probably aware or familiar with a story from a few years ago where a couple, I believe they might have been in their 20s or 30s, their baby died of neglect in real life but they had a baby on digital life and their digital no. baby was well Sam's, taken Sam's care of. The digital baby was fine, but the uh, baby in real life died. Never Game incorporates a video game I made up called The Whispering Man in which a, um, uh, a, a character, now it might be a ghost, a goblin, it might be somebody dressed up in a scream outfit like yes. the moon mask uh but he um abducts the 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 avatar the character in the game and hides them somewhere in an abandoned um factory or in a um maybe a sinking ship and then leaves five objects with the uh the person now this is within the game it's a multiplayer game and they have a certain amount of time to use those five objects sort of like MacGyver, you know, to to work out weapons to, to save themselves, mm-hmm. or they may barter those weapons for something to escape from this situation. And if they don't do that in time, the Whispering Man returns and will um, uh, try to dispatch them. And they, of course, can use the five things that they have been given for um, uh, their own uh, defense. Now, that was was uh, inspired by a, a, a sad story a few years ago known uh, known as the Slender Man. Are you familiar yes. with that story? Yes. And uh, that was for your listeners who aren't familiar. Uh, that was not a um, a video game. It was a um, I think it may have been a, um, a, a meme comes to mind. I'm 69 years old. I'm still not sure what a meme is exactly. I want a meme so badly to be associated with me, but I, I, I don't quite know how to do it. I should probably talk to my nieces again. They might. <laughs> True. This character was a fictional creation, was uh, photoshopped into a number of uh, scenarios playing kind of a War of the Worlds thing from the mm-hmm. 1930s. He was making up that this was real, but some people took it seriously and they came to believe, two, two students, two girls came to believe that uh, in high school, I think, they may have been younger, Slender Man wanted them to kill a classmate and they did uh, attack her. She, she, she did not die. But I was really uh, interested in the idea of fiction crossing the, the line into reality. Mm-hmm. And so that was uh, one aspect of the, uh, the Never game. I've only got you for a couple more minutes, but I want to ask a little bit about something within the industry. You have written a multitude of novels, series, short stories. You've edited anthologies. And I think you were a little bit ahead of the game. In 2014, you wrote The Starling Project, which was an original audio performance. And Mm -hmm. audio is currently just exploding. And I just wondered if you see yourself doing more projects like The Starling Project in the future with the expansion of audio. Yes, it was a a fascinating uh, project. I was approached by Audible.com. They they said, could you write an original radio play? Um, uh, Alfred Molina would, would star in it. Uh, so I wrote, imagine this, a movie script without any visual. So mm. we had to impart the information through the uh, soundtrack and by doing things other than saying, well, my goodness, here we have arrived in Marseille, France. Yes, here we are now. Uh, <laughs> you can't do that. You have to be a little more clever and subtle about it. But once I got into the project, I had a lot of fun. It was a 30 
character story voiced by, I think, only 12 people. I respect actors so much. They can shift their voices. Uh, they can uh, adopt accents in a way that I could never, never do. And that was uh, great fun. I have uh, those projects in mind. Yes, I actually am doing an original script, working with a um, director in London right now, uh, Ron Scapello. And this is a police uh, script, actually kind of based on the Ferguson, Ferguson, Missouri mm -hmm. uh, story. Uh, and, and we've seen uh, The Hate You Give. This is not a, a unique story, but, uh, of course, about an officer, uh, generally a, a racial uh, context, a white officer shooting an African-American or a person of color. And what are the consequences uh, that lead up to that and what are the, what's the aftermath? Uh, mine's uh, more uh, genre crime oriented, but it's uh, something that I, I uh, have been enjoying quite a bit. Um, but you know what, Mindy, very, very quickly uh, for your listeners who uh, I'm sure are aspiring writers, it's a new world out there. I started, I've been writing full time for 30 years now and been writing fiction for about 35. When I got started, it was different. A book was a book. Now a book has to be something I feel slightly different. Mm -hmm. We are up against a very formidable cultural forms of competition like Angry Birds and Minecraft mm -hmm. and things like that and streaming TV. So The Never Game is written in what I have, I actually call a streaming style. I want to get people who consume entertainment, who are basically all of us, back to a book to show them that it is what I believe the most emotionally engaging form of creative effort there is. I love music, I love going to the art galleries, I love dance, but, and film and TV and everything. But I'll tell you what, I love books more because they engage us more. Mm -hmm. We readers are participants with the author. I'm writing my books shorter, the chapters are shorter, paragraphs are shorter, much more dialogue. I wanna make sure that no reader has to look up a word of mine that's in one of my books in a thesaurus or dictionary. They have to know what that word uh, is. Uh, and I'm not writing down to anyone. Mm -hmm. I'm simply uh -huh. trying to tell a story that they will say to themselves, oh, this is like a Netflix original, or this is something I could have seen on Hulu. It's just that I'm filming it in my head. Uh, maybe a pipe dream, but that's what I'm that's what I'm trying to do. No, I agree with you completely in it being an immersive experience in the extent that, yes, it is like a movie in your head, but you're in charge of everything. You're the director. You are doing the casting. You are making the voice for the each character. You decide what they look like. It's, exactly. It's exactly yeah. how I work when I'm reading. And I'm not conscious of my physical surroundings when I am lost in a book. Like I am oh. not physically present any longer. When I was in, living in Manhattan, I took the bus a lot or subways, and uh, I'd end up, uh, you know, I, in Harlem. I'm just I'm living downtown and not paying attention, reading a book, end up in Harlem, and uh, yeah, I was good. I'd go to a good restaurant there, then turn around and come back home. My girlfriend said, where were you? And it's hard to explain that. Right. But you just get totally involved in the books. Completely lost. All right. Well, I know you've got somewhere else you've got to go, so I'm going to let you go. But thank you so much for your time. It was a great conversation. Mindy, a great pleasure. Good luck, good luck with your writing, and maybe I'll see you at the uh, Edgars again. Maybe we'll be, well, I guess if you're doing YA, we won't be competing, but maybe we'll both win that year. That, that would be great. I would love it. <laughs> writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. 
A special thank you to fellow authors Alyssa Palombo and R.C. Lewis, as well as patron Stephen Avery for helping to make this episode possible. If you find the blog or podcast helpful, please consider showing your support by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash writer writer pants on fire and making a donation. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist.